think we needed four or five hours to deal with that topic and everything David knows on it. It's, it's fascinating. I hope hope he gets to come back at some point. But I'm just going to bring in our our next guest, uh, Sarah. Welcome to Outward Unleashed. How are you? Thank you. I'm very well, thank you, and thank you so much for inviting me on. It's our pleasure. I, I've read your your wonderful book, and uh, it was great for me because I, I I have to admit I I knew absolutely nothing about the you know the Whitechapel murders of you know Jack the Ripper. Uh, outside of sort of popular culture tropes and things like that. So it was great to get a good deep dive. And I, I had no idea how how sort of horrific it was as well. It probably sounds a bit daft to say. Uh, so maybe we, you could just start by telling us your sort of your personal connection to this, this you know, world famous story that's become, took on almost mythological uh, trappings, hasn't it? Yes, my book One-Armed Jack is a non-fiction re-examination of the Jack the Ripper case and it proposes a new prime suspect, Chaim Hyams, an East End cigar maker. And my introduction to the case came about because I discovered in early 2017 that I had a police ancestor, Harry Garrett, who worked on the case. And this just came about through family history research, which was started by my late father and which I took on after his death. And when I found Harry had been transferred into Whitechapel on promotion to sergeant in January 1888, and the Ripper murders kicked off in August of that year, I was so intrigued that I thought I would find out more about the case myself. And as you say, we all feel that we know something about the Jack the Ripper case, but in fact, it was a series of five, or in my analysis, six murders in quite a compressed time frame between August and November 1888. And with a lot of complexity about the victims, the circumstances of the murders, the locations. And in my book, I do a true crime reconstruction for each of the murders. And I actually follow the killer's escape route home. I think you were, if I've remembered correctly from reading the book, I think you refer to the the victims that you attribute to him as sort of the, uh, the canonical victims. Uh, and I, I just wonder what what sort of things. I mean, my first question on this would be: How difficult is it to obtain first-hand sources of events, given it's you know happened so long ago in a time where records aren't the most you know well-kept things? And how how are we linking these uh, victims in your mind to say this is definitely the same attacker? Exactly. So we're 135 years on and the main Whitechapel murders files, the Metropolitan Police files. And over the years, they, like the City of London police files, have been bombed in the blitz, lost, weeded out, even pilfered from. And so what we have is a very incomplete set of papers, which are the original files, which I was fascinated by because I wanted to get back to my police ancestor and what was genuinely happening at Lemon Street Police Station, where he was posted. But in terms of other sources of information, 
the inquests into the deaths of each of the women were well reported in the newspapers. And there is a lot in the press of the day, not least because the journalists were news hounds exactly as they are today. And the police did feel that they were frustrating their inquiries by scampering around the streets of Whitechapel and speaking themselves to the witnesses and people who lived locally to the murder locations. That's interesting what you said about the sort of tenacity of the journalists. I think you mentioned in your book at one point that a potential suspect sighting may have just been a random journalist looking for information at the time as well. I mean, just moving on to like the the chosen victims here. I mean, the, the majority of them, if not all of them, I believe, were sort of working girls, uh, prostitutes, for want of a better word. Was there any sort of feeling perhaps from the authorities that this was less um, worthy of their time because of the status of these women? There are a couple of myths that I would love to bust here, and this is one of them, because the police put their best men on the job. This is both the Metropolitan and the City of London police. The women's lives were not considered of less value because they were destitute, uh, because they were casual street walkers. Many of them had other roles. They uh, cleaned for local people. They hawked or sold small goods like needles and thread on the streets. So they resorted to casual prostitution when they were desperate. And they were often desperate because Catherine Eddowes, for example, was so poor that she carried all of her possessions in her pockets, including tins of tea leaves and so on. And her partner had pawned the boots that he was wearing to try to get them into lodgings for the night. So I think we need to look at these women in the situation and context where where they lived, which is they fell on hard times and there was no safety net. That's very well put. I'm very happy for you to clear that up for people uh, as well. I mean, obviously, your your uh, way into this, as you said, like a sort of ancestral genealogy revelation, you know, makes perfect sense. But this isn't some obscure thing that happened. There's still a huge amount of public interest and folklore uh, surrounding it. What do you think keeps the fascination with it alive, considering, you know, on the face of it, it's extremely unpleasant and, and grisly in many ways, but the public seem to really still be fascinated with this one uh, particular individual? I think it has long been considered the world's greatest unsolved mystery. But I find this ironic because when I started researching the case with very minimal knowledge myself, although I had been on a Jack the Ripper walk when I first came to London uh, in my 20s and I was persuaded on it by two old school friends and it was a talk given by the great Donald Rumbelow, who's one of the main Ripper experts. And that momentarily got me interested in the case, but I was a young person in London and I thought no more about it until I made the discovery in early 2017. And regarding the case, this is another myth that needs to go out the window as far as I'm concerned, because I was astonished when I started researching it seriously to find out that the police of the day had publicly declared that they'd solved it. 
So CID Chief Robert Anderson said that he'd solved the case and the identity of the killer was known without doubt, but that a key eyewitness had refused to testify against a fellow Jew. And the reason for this would have been that um, it was the death penalty in those days and the killer would have either been hanged or if he'd been found to be a criminal lunatic, he would have spent the rest of his days in Broadmoor. But um, hanging was really the first um, kind of sentence and probably what would most likely have happened. And Robert Anderson and some of his fellow officers left a profile of the unnamed suspect that has provided enough information for me to feel that 135 years later, I've solved the case. And Anderson described a Polish Jew, an East Ender, who lived in the immediate vicinity of the murders, who was seen by a fellow Jew who refused to testify against him who suffered from fits or paroxysms, which fit very well with Chaim Chaim's having severe epilepsy. And these fits caused him to kill. And um, he was neutralized by his admission to a lunatic asylum. And um, his colleague, Inspector Donald Swanson, who was the lead investigator in the case, gave two locations where the Ripper was held, Stepney Workhouse and Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum. Robert Anderson's wife also mentioned Stone Lunatic Asylum. And when I researched Chaim Hyams, I discovered that he had been held in each of those three locations, which are geographically dispersed. And in fact, the distance between Colney Hatch in North London and Stone in Dartford in Kent is over 30 miles, which would have been a considerable distance in the Victorian era. Yeah, I mean, that that in, that the idea of this individual being identified as sort of a Polish Jew is mentioned in your book. And this is the first time I'd ever heard it mentioned that the, the perpetrator was potentially Jewish. And you mentioned this as a detail in your book, very matter of factly. It's not you're not disparaging the Jewish community or Jewish people or anything like that in general. But when when setting this down, were you a little bit worried how it might be interpreted by people? Obviously, you've got one of the people, uh, you know, one of the most ferocious serial killers in, in mythology. And you're saying it's a Jewish person. And, and not only that, a fellow Jew may have covered up for him. Just optically, did, would you have any pause for concern about how certain people might interpret what you were saying? Robert Anderson himself felt that he would be accused of anti-Semitism because of what he publicly published in his memoir about the case. And he said, look, this person just happens to be a Polish Jew living in Whitechapel and there's not a lot I can do about that. You know, the crimes weren't religiously motivated. Um, as I explain in my book, they were sexually motivated by someone with quite severe uh, psychological and physical illnesses. And I was just careful not to be sensationalist, not only with that, but I didn't want to in any way disparage the women who were the victims. And actually, 
I did feel some compassion for the killer himself and I did try to write a very balanced account of what I believed uh, happened in those dark days of 1888. What What are the eyewitness testimonies like in terms of the physical description of this individual? What kind of things could we say that we know pretty well that could create a picture of, you know, if we were to draw him or do some sort of e-fit, what, what kind of distinguishing features could we could we point to? So there were several eyewitnesses across at least four of the murders. And these are people who either saw a man accosting one of the victims in the minutes before her death, or they saw someone running away. And I have some information here about what they saw. And they saw a man of medium height and build, between five foot five and five foot eight inches tall, stout and broad shouldered, aged between 30 and 40, with a full face, dark or brown hair, a moustache, wearing a dark jacket or coat, trousers, sometimes a hat more like a bowler hat, occasionally a peaked or double peaked cap, which you wore to keep the rain off your neck. Um, he spoke colloquial English in a mild voice. And one witness said he had a stiff arm. And two said that he had this unusual shuffling walk with bent knees. And from what we know about Chaim Hyams, he was weighed, measured, described, and his mental and physical illnesses and disabilities were listed in his medical records. And I can say that he was aged 35, he had dark brown hair, he probably had at least a moustache and possibly also a beard at the time of the killings. We don't know this because the only existing photograph is from several years later, taken in Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum. He was five foot seven and a half inches tall, weighed 10 stone seven, and it was towards the top end of the modern uh, BMI. He was noticeably broad-shouldered. He talked with a slight hesitancy of speech. And he was injured in February 1888. He broke his left elbow, which left him unable to fully bend and extend his left arm. And he had an irregular gait or way of walking with asymmetric foot dragging. And this is what uh, two of the eyewitnesses saw. Um, his files say that after his periodic epileptic fits, he was extremely violent and dangerous. And this may explain the periodicity of the Ripper murders, which has been a subject of debate for many years. Um, when in good health, he was quiet, civil and attentive to his physical appearance. And his wife called him kind and industrious. But when he was in poor health, he was dangerous, treacherous. Uh, he tore his sheets. He painted the walls with excrement. He committed violent attacks on his wife when she visited him, medical staff and fellow inmates, one of them with a sharpened piece of metal to the throat, which he managed to get hold of. He was delusional, paranoid, 
and an alcoholic who suffered from delirium tremens, which can cause hallucinations, that severe alcohol withdrawal symptom. And he was suspected to have syphilis. And interestingly, he had a, a paranoia, which called a terror on, on the, the files that um, the police were following him. And indeed, the City of London police said that a man was chased from Mitre Square, the scene of one of the crimes, and at a later date was put under surveillance for three months. And there's a period of three months between January and April 1889 when Haim Hyams was at liberty. And in my book, I propose this might have been the period of time when Haim Hyams was under surveillance and hence his terror of the police when uh, admitted to medical facilities. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going there. And you, you detail this really, really well in your book. And I was just wondering as well, given the sort of the violence involved and the ferocity and the, the damage done, what sort of weapons are we looking at that, that a person could conceal that could, he could use to cause this, uh, inflict this amount of damage on these victims? It was believed to be a knife at least uh, six inches long. And the police surgeons of the day, when they conducted the post-mortem examinations on the victims, they were asked by police what weapon could have inflicted this. The only difference is in what might arguably be the first murder of Martha Tabram, when it was thought that uh, a very deep wound uh, to her chest might have been made by a butt by bayonet and in fact she was seen consorting with a soldier however it was possibly several hours before her death and so there has been considerable debate about whether she was killed by a soldier or whether she then went on to pick up another man who was the ripper not a soldier who may actually have killed her with a normal knife well, I mean, what's interesting when we started speaking, you, you spoke about the motive being sexual uh, and you mentioned in your book, you know, that a lot of these victims would have felt they were just leading a potential customer away somewhere private, perhaps. So uh, how does that how do we get from him wanting sexual gratification and, and, and you know, going with the pretense of taking these women's services to, you know, outright butchering them? I mean, is this is this just a horrible way of you know not not paying is this is this something else going on how, how do we derive it as a sexual motive they've always believed to be been believed to be sexually motive motivated attacks and i think some of it is the victim profile some of it is the extreme violence visited upon the women so after killing them unless interrupted their killer mutilated their bodies, some to, as you say, quite a horrific extent, which we won't discuss now. And his aim and objective was to remove their wounds. So this is clearly a very sexually motivated act. And he also stabbed them on their genitals. Um, it is a way of getting gratification. So a lot of sexually motivated crimes 
do not involve rape. And in fact, the Ripper murders are not considered to be rapes, that he did get his gratification from posing the bodies in certain positions after their murders and by uh, through the mutilations and by the removal of some organs of their bodies as trophies. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting you mentioned in your in your book as well at the time, there was this idea of sort of an American aspect influence of somebody looking for organs for particular uh, reasons. How, how much do you feel that that theory plays into it in, in terms of its credibility? I don't believe that he was collecting organs in terms of wanting to use them for medical or pseudo-medical purposes, which was a theory that was um, proposed by one of the leading coroners of the day. However, yes, I think it is clear that he was seeking to remove the wounds. And in other cases, he did remove uh, part of a kidney uh, a heart of another victim and so on. So um, these really are extreme crimes and you can understand why the East End streets were became panic-stricken. People were terrified. They would only speak of the Ripper in whispers and people very quickly realised that it was not safe to go out after dark. Although, of course, if you were desperate and destitute and possibly, you know, had no other option, you might have felt safe, you know, or safe enough that it was unlikely to happen to yourself. Does it surprise you how long this went on in terms of, I mean, you've mentioned, you know, in, in the sense of he's gay, he's, he's a slight difficulty in walking, the issue with his arms. So he, he may have not been the strongest individual or the fastest individual. And it strikes me that a lot of his crimes were so brazen in terms of their locations and the ferocity uh, as to attract a lot of attention. And he seems to get away with this time after time uh, to the point where really uh, it's still considered an unsolved case. And obviously I'd, I'd like to say, that it'd be almost near impossible for anything similar to happen now without them immediately being identified in court. Does it surprise you even then that this went on for so long since there were so many victims? The police of the day had so few, few tools and techniques available to them. The first two murders in my analysis, so Martha Tabram and then the first of the canonical five Polly Nichols, were unwitnessed. So nobody beyond Martha's soldier, which we've already mentioned, nobody saw them uh, consorting with a man close to the time of their death and nobody saw anyone running away. So you've got two to start off with, whereby the police had extremely little to go with. Then we have the murder of Annie Chapman, and there are two very interesting eyewitnesses. A woman called Elizabeth Long saw a man who was inevitably, must have been the Ripper, accosting her, talking to her, leaning against the shutters of a house on Hanbury Street where Annie Chapman would minutes later be killed in the backyard. And then a man called John Thimbleby saw a man almost running from the scene of the crime along Hanbury Street and away down Brick Lane with his very peculiar gait with uh, bent knees, which is exactly 
the uh, physical issue that Haim Haim's had. And I do posit in my book that as a loose supposition, it was potentially solvable from that point forward. But I don't say that with any certainty because you have these sightings and the difficulty in the overcrowded East End of trying to match these you know, tenuous descriptions to a known individual was extremely difficult. Um, the police had more to work with after the double event in which two women were killed within 45 minutes of each other. And one of those murders took place in the square mile of the City of London, bringing the extra resources of the City of London police to play. And with that uh, second murder, we have this reluctant eyewitness. So we have a key witness who might have been able to secure a police conviction of the Ripper who refused to testify. And unfortunately, after that, the police were still unable to stop the killer from the escalation of violence that we see in the last victim, Mary Jane Kelly. Where did the name Jack come from in all this? So there were some hoax letters sent into the police. The police were inundated not only by hoax letters uh, constructed by journalists, which kind of kept the story running in the in the quiet days between murders. Um, and one of those letters was uh, signed Jack the Ripper. But the, they were also inundated by very well-meaning members of the public coming forward saying they'd seen men with blood-stained cuffs or shirts or people behaving strangely at particular locations or making threats which sounded a bit ripperish. And so the police were absolutely inundated with um, information and they also clearly needed to conduct house-to-house inquiries and find a way using plainclothes policemen and surveillance of trying to track down the killer. And they did use those techniques and arguably successfully in the Jack the Ripper case. Do you think, I mean, it's it's fascinating to me that this is such a historical case and we seem to think we know all we know or we, all we can know rather. And then you look into it a bit more and you, you find something else that's really interesting and fascinating and credible on the face of it. Do you, do you think it's possible we will get the answers one day that you, you need a, a key piece of information, a new technique, something we can do, you know, outside the realm of time travel, I suppose. Are you optimistic that we'll, we'll learn more on this story or do you think we pretty much have everything we're ever going to have now? I genuinely believe that I've solved the case. Nobody else has an evidence-led hypothesis which matches the distinctive physical characteristics reported by eyewitnesses and the police. And the profiles, both constructed in the day and by the FBI 100 years later in 1988. So I think I've made a strong case and I don't think a stronger case can be made. The the only thing that I do put in my book is whether anyone would like to follow in my footsteps and have another look at the case that I've put and possibly add to it. But I don't think there'll be than mine. 
I mean, there are a lot of people now who are, I mean, the internet has certainly has, has enabled a lot of people to get to information. There's a lot of amateur sleuths and people who spend their time looking at so-called cold cases. And it's become quite, quite popular as a pastime. And it's got a huge audience from it. And there'll be people out there who think they know Jack the Ripper and they're the the expert and they're the, the leading voice. Have you had any sort of pushback from people who have uh, who have taken issue with your conclusions? I haven't. People seem very intrigued by me and my theory. People who've read the book have written some good reviews. Um, they've said it's extraordinary and it's about time that we declare the case closed. Um, but in the coming months, I'm hoping that many more people will read my book and enjoy it and let their thoughts be known. Okay, well, I, I really enjoyed it, despite the harrowing subject matter. Uh, it, was a, it was a good read. It was a great read, uh, Sarah. So thank you very much for coming on and uh, speaking to us. Maybe if, you, if you'd like, you can point people towards where they can find your book, maybe find some more information about what you're up to. Yes, my book, One Arm Jack, is widely available in the shops and online. It's a hardback and it's also an ebook and audiobook. I'm currently on Instagram. I'm afraid I'm not the greatest user of social <laughs> media, but if anybody wanted to follow me, I'd probably make a bit more of an effort to um, be engaging um, online. Yeah, I had to be uh, schooled by my 16-year-old niece a few months ago on how to use Instagram because that is foreign territory for me as well. So I, I suspect you're doing better than I am in that regard, but uh, for sure. But Sarah, I really uh, love speaking to you. And like I said, I really enjoyed the book. So thank you very much for giving up uh, some of your evening to speak to us. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. All the best.